What kind of book is the Old Testament? Who wrote it and, and when was that? How did the various parts of the Old Testament come together and how were they arranged? Are some parts more important than others or are they all equally important? These questions will be addressed, perspectives will be shared, facts will be given in this podcast, which is called The Structure of the Old Testament. There's a parallel podcast I've recorded also, The Structure of the New Testament. The notes that accompany the message uh, contain almost everything I'll say, so please refer to those, particularly if you're listening to this as part of the AIM Old Testament survey. One, the Old Testament is not a book. It's a library. Yes, there's a single overarching narrative. There's a thread that you can trace from Genesis throughout the Old Testament and and into the New. But it's not a single book. There's a story, an overarching story, but the Old Testament is many books. It's really a library. It's a collection And these were not written at one time. They were not published at one time. They were not completed at one time. It contains multiple literary genre. Literary genre means the type of literature that we we find in the Old Testament. We find, for example, apocalypse. There are a number of apocalypses in the Old Testament. Battle reports, blessings, covenants. Even curses are literary types. There, there are certain rules they, they follow, and, and that gives us hints on how to interpret them. Um, itineraries, psalms, travelogues, uh, treaties, law codes, narratives, prayers, prophecies, proverbs, and many other things. So each genre has its own rules for understanding, just as if you walked into any library or bookshop. You don't read every book the same. You might uh, cuddle up in a you know, goes you up in a chair and, and read a novel uh, slowly or, or very quickly. It doesn't really matter if you miss some of it. If you're reading a science book, uh, it's pretty important to understand how one thing connects to another. A library naturally has many authors. Two, authorship. Most books of the Old Testament are anonymous, though some reflect the lives and teachings of major biblical characters. Uh, Moses and David and Ezra particularly come to mind. There are major characters in the Old Testament who wrote nothing. For example, Abraham or Joseph. We have nothing that they wrote, although we believe we have their words. The Jews attributed much of the Bible to Ezra, the priest of the 5th century BC in the Persian period, and he may have had a big hand in it. When you look at his uh, resume, in um, uh, uh, Ezra 7.10. It's pretty impressive, that guy. The Pentateuch, that is the five uh, roles, the the, uh, first five books of the Bible, are traditionally attributed to Moses. In some countries of the world, they're not called Genesis, Exodus, and so forth. They're called the first book of Moses, the second book of Moses, and and on and on. So they're attributed to him. He's certainly uh, the dominant human personality. But did he write any of it? Yes, I think so. Did he write all of it? Very unlikely. Uh, Joshua is occasionally seen writing in a book. The prophet's words were preserved by their disciples. In Isaiah chapter 8, we find that that prophet has followers. 
and they're taking notes. In Jeremiah 36, Jeremiah has Baruch. He's his scribe or secretary. Baruch delivers the messages after he's written down what Jeremiah has said. And uh, take a look at Jeremiah 36, particularly the end. See what happens after the evil King Jehoiakim burns the prophecies of doom of Jeremiah, burns them, and they just end up getting replaced. But look at the process. Many Psalms and Proverbs have attribution. You know, say a Psalm of David or a Proverb of Solomon, uh, a Psalm of Asaph or uh, you know, the Proverbs arranged by the men of Hezekiah and so forth. But overall, most parts of the Old Testament, we don't know who wrote them. We can see who influenced them. Amos obviously influences Amos, and Amos's words are all throughout that, that wonderful book. But was he the author or was he the, the editor? Hard to say. Three, as you may be guessing by now, the Old Testament came together gradually. The, as, a, as a collection of books, as a library, it came together slowly. I mean, the Pentateuch, the, the Torah, contains a good deal of old material. The writings of the prophets, most of them are in the 8th to 5th century B.C. Obviously, were not written altogether. The oldest surviving manuscripts of the Old Testament are in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and these go back before the time of Christ. And they're also in the Christian codexes, the Christian books of the 4th and 5th centuries, which contain not just New Testament, but Old Testament. And there are medieval manuscripts like the Aleppo Codex and Leningrad Codex from around 900 or 1000 AD. But the best, uh, the best Old Testament manuscripts are the Dead Sea Scrolls and what's been preserved by, by early Christians. Copies, after all, were made by hand. These manuscripts were written by scribes and eventually... Um, the, the books uh, are all collected, they come together, but the process took centuries. It's not just that the Old Testament as an, an entirety grew, the various sections of the Old Testament grew. Uh, perhaps some of the books were written all at once, but not normally. I can give you some obvious examples. Proverbs has multiple authors. So these were collected and, and they're written by people in different centuries. I mean, you'll find one from Solomon, then you'll see uh, one from Hezekiah. Well, I mean, Hezekiah's men are, are writing in the 8th and 7th century BC. You'll see, uh, you'll see one of them even from Moses. Uh, so they're all different centuries. In Genesis, we, we may be tempted to think, oh, Genesis is an ancient book. It must have been written thousands of years ago. Well, the primeval accounts that were rewritten from the Babylonians and Sumerians, you know, the flood story, the creation, and so forth, they, they go back to maybe 1800 BC, at least the original forms, but then the biblical writers rewrote them, took out the mythology, and made them all point to, to Yahweh. And we see in, in Genesis 36 that the final edition of Genesis was written no earlier than the time of the monarchy. So that's you know approximately 1000 BC, and probably it was uh, completed long after that. The Torah, the other books of the Torah, reflect uh, changing conditions. Of course, they're wandering in the wilderness in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. By the time of Joshua, 
the situation has changed and many of the laws are updated. So, you, you know, the wilderness wanderings were time when the Jewish people were in tents. But in Deuteronomy, it's assumed that they have houses. In Exodus, people come to the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, since it's a movable temple, is not fixed to one uh, location. I mean, it's at one location at a time, but there are many locations. Whereas Deuteronomy speaks of coming together and all worshiping in the same place, the same city. And of course, that's Jerusalem. In Exodus, we see that Moses has been doing some writing. The Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Exodus 7.14. So there's this book, and not just uh, Moses, but also Joshua are involved in it. Later on in Exodus, uh, we read um, in uh, chapter 24, I just read 17.14, now in 24.7, we read this. Um, Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Well, that was a good day in Israel. But the book of the covenant. So Moses uh, had the writing from Sinai, written by the hand of God. But Moses is seen writing in a book. And that does not at all mean that he wrote Exodus. But he certainly made some notes. And whether he wrote some of it or a lot of it, somebody relied upon that information that was uh, being recorded. I'll give you another example, Second Chronicles. See, all these books, are uh, they have a history. They, they evolve. They, it's like they have multiple editions. But uh, you know, at what point was the book uh, finished and a product of the community? Well, actually, at many points. But it's a much more dynamic picture than, than, than I certainly used to think as a younger Christian. I, I imagine the books were fairly static. They'd be written by... Just one person at one time, and updating it would be deceitful because you can't change God's words. But actually, God's uh, ap- the application of God's words uh, may vary. In Second Chronicles, I was listening. Uh, I listened to the, the Bible on CD probably once every year or two on the average. I probably listen to the Bible that way probably twenty times. It's amazing how much scripture you can listen to. And it's good. It slows me down. In Second Chronicles, uh, just the other day, uh, I, I took note about the passage. It, it's describing the, the tabernacle and the temple. But it says that the poles, these are the poles that were used for carrying the Ark of the Covenant. The poles were so long that the ends were seen from the holy place. I mean, they're sticking out on the other side of the curtain. But they could not be seen from outside. Okay, if you're outside the, the temple area, you can't see it. And then it says, rather intriguingly, and they are there to this day. And actually, the book of Joshua has lots of uh, comments like that, too. You know, we made a pile of stones, and they're there to this very day. Well, that's not talking about our day. It's talking about the day in which the book of the Bible was completed. So we read about the poles, and it struck me as odd, because I know that Chronicles is written after the fall of the temple. So how do I know that? Well, chapter 36, in the last chapter, you know, when the, the Babylonians finally break through, it's that terrible day, we read that they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, 
burnt all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. So I don't think that the author meant to say that the poles are still sticking out today. Sticking out of what? I mean, the temple was totally razed, just as the Romans razed the temple in 70 AD. So one part of Chronicles preserves, um, uh, let's say, uh, when it was written, but when chapter 5 was written, uh, it, it's centuries earlier uh, than, than uh, chapter 36. Chapter 36 would be 6th century B.C., and so the poles were still sticking out uh, in chapter 5, but by chapter 36, they're not sticking out. In fact, it'll be a long time before uh, the, the ark and, and a temple um, are in the possession of, of Israelites. Okay, one other thought on this uh, notion of the Old Testament coming together. The Old Testament itself uh, states that it will be replaced. You know, you've got the New Covenant passage of Jeremiah 31. This is one of the most important passages, I think, for any Christian to know. And it's one of those passages that if uh, the Jews had really paid attention to it in the first century, um, a greater number would have come over uh, to follow Christ. And it's a very important passage for Hebrews. That is uh, the, the, the letter of the Hebrews in the New Testament, which quotes it in chapter 8. But let me just read from Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I could keep going. It's a beautiful passage. But it speaks of a new covenant, and it says it's going to be different from the covenant that God made when they left Egypt. So when they left Egypt, eventually Moses is on Mount Sinai in Arabia. He gets the Ten Commandments, but the covenant is more than just the Ten Commandments. The many chapters of Exodus constitute what is called the Book of the Covenant. But this old covenant... It was not old if it's not going to be replaced, but Jeremiah itself says, and this is like, you know, 600 BC, it says there's going to be a new covenant, a new testament, and testament, covenant, Hebrew, berit, Greek, diatheke, they have overlapping, really almost identical meanings, covenant, testament. So the Old Testament itself refers to a new covenant. And when God makes a covenant, and there are many covenants in the Old Testament, he makes a covenant with, uh, with David, for example, makes a covenant with Abraham. When, when God makes a covenant, there are words, and things are written down. Things are written down. So if there's going to be a new covenant, then there's going to be more writings. That is, more scripture. The Bible is not done yet. Well, I'll get back to this idea in a moment. So where are we so far? Uh, number one, the Old Testament is not a book, but a library. And, and, and to be unaware of that uh, is to be naive and make, to make it very hard for, you, for yourself to read it. We talked about authorship. There are many authors, but really the true author is, is the Lord himself, but not in the way that the Muslims think, you know, God just dictated it to somebody, or worse, that the Bible dropped out of heaven. Not that way. God worked through people. 
authorship is multiple, and much of the authorship is unknown. Three, the Old Testament came together gradually. There are parts of the Old Testament uh, that, that go back into the second millennium B.C., but in its final form, the Old Testament was certainly not finished before the 5th century B.C., because we have characters like Ezra and Nehemiah who are working in the 5th century. Uh, four, sections and order. Okay, most English Bibles, uh, most English Bibles I've read, are based on the Hebrew order. When I say the Hebrew order, back in the time of Jesus, there were different Hebrew versions. They were all very similar, uh, but they had some, some differences, and you know that's okay. It, it's not a problem. Uh, the, the message was the same, regardless of little differences here and there. But the, the Jews ended up arranging the, the Bible in three parts. And those parts are the Torah, that is the, the first five documents, and then Nevi'im, Hanevi'im, the prophets, and then the writings, the Ketuvim. And then there's a, an acronym that comes from Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, T from Torah, N from Nevi'im, Ch from Ketuvim, and that makes Tanakh. So a Jewish person, if you say, um, have you studied Tanakh, you're not talking about Torah, you're talking about law and prophets and writings, that is, all three sections. Now, for the, the Hebrew order, what was standardized uh, before the Middle Ages, but which has come down to us in our English Bibles um, in a very different order, but th their order for the, for the Jews was the five books of the law and then the prophets, Starting with Joshua, they considered Joshua and Judges and other books as prophets. So it was Joshua to Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. The order of the Twelve, that is from Hosea to Malachi, is somewhat flexible. So the prophets contains 10 documents, 21 documents if you, you know, chop up the minor prophets. And then the third division is the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, the order continues, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles, and that's 11 documents. But Chronicles was later divided into two. Ezra, Nehemiah was also divided into two. So you end up with, with more. Well, that's the Hebrew Bible. Jesus refers to the tripartite division of law, prophets, and writings in Luke 24, where he explains to some disciples his own identity. Now, the Hebrew Bible ends in this standard Jewish order. It ends with an invitation to go up to Jerusalem, to make Aliyah. Aliyah is going up. Well, even today, when, when uh, Jews move to the Holy Land, that's called making Aliyah. It ends with, uh, Second Chronicles ends with an invitation from the Persian king, saying that unlike the Babylonians before us, we're not trying to break you and and rule you the way they did. We think you can rule yourselves. You, your guys will answer to us. We don't. Uh, our, our way is not to execute all your leaders and spread them all over creation or kill them. It is to work through leaders. We need you to be in Israel. And so there's the invitation from the Persians to the Jews who are scattered uh, in Babylon, Syria. Anatolia, Egypt, other places, to, to go up. And the Cyrus Cylinder, 
uh, an important archaeological find, actually has the words that were authorized by King Cyrus of Persia, Koresh or Cyrus, to, uh, to, to not only encourage the Jews to return to their homeland, but to receive funding from the imperial treasury for rebuilding the temple. Amazing. Now, that's in Second Chronicles 36 and Ezra 1. Well, the Hebrew Bible ends in Second Chronicles 36 because the order is, is, is different. But it ends with you you're kind of hanging. You know, there, there are these various promises uh, that, that are made. Some of them are fulfilled. Some of them are not. Uh, there's the thing about the Messiah. He still hasn't come. It says there's going to be a new covenant. Well, where is that? What's happened? And so the Old Testament, if you go to a synagogue, it just ends, you know, if you want to go up, go up. In other words, make a new beginning. But it, it leaves you hanging. Now, let's talk about the Greek order. That's the Hebrew order. But the order of the books, I'm not sure that's a matter of inspiration. But the feeling that you get when you uh, look at the order is, let's say, it has some theological significance. So the Jews translated their Old Testament into Greek in the 3rd century BC, in an island right off of Alexandria, Egypt. This is the version called the Septuagint, because it was translated by about 70 scholars. Septuaginta, Latin word for 70. Okay, it's abbreviated normally LXX from the Roman numerals. The Greek order is not tripartite like the Masoretic text, the Hebrews, the Hebrew version. The Greek is in a four-part order. So first you have the Pentateuch, same order from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then histories, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first kingdoms, second kingdoms, third kingdoms, and fourth kingdoms. Well, see, they call first and second Samuel first and second kingdoms because in first Samuel, uh, Saul is king. It ends uh, with, with his death, David's being anointed. But the, you have kings in all those books. So first, second, third, fourth. Now, when I'm, when I'm speaking in Russia, if I ask people to, you know, to look at uh, first kings, I need to be alert because my translator will be telling them to go to third kingdoms. And then the Greek um, Bible has what we call first and second chronicles. They call them the things left over. Uh, leftover things. Well, it's not really a good title for Chronicles because Chronicles is a is it's a kind of a retelling of the story of the monarchy uh, with a focus on faithful Judah, the Southern Kingdom. And after that, First and Second Esdras, Esther, which has been expanded a bit, Judith and Tobit. So the Pentateuch, histories, and then wisdom. So the Psalms, which are almost the same as the Hebrew Psalms. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Job, Wisdom of Solomon, and Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus. There's some extra books. And then Prophecy, the Twelve, then Isaiah, Jeremiah, Baruch, Lamentations, the Letter of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, which has been expanded a bit, First and Second Maccabees, and sometimes it includes Third Maccabees and even Fourth Maccabees. Now, if you've never read the Apocrypha, I, I do actually encourage Christians to read it. I think it's very valuable. Normally, I say, once you've read the whole Old Testament several times, maybe five times, then read the Apocrypha, and you will, you'll be appreciative for how it fits in and, and makes sense of what happened between the Testaments. So this Septuagint was translated in the 3rd century, 
But there's so many cool passages in it that support Christianity that eventually the Jews rejected it. They actually made fun of it, even though they're the ones who translated it. They, in the second, third century AD, they, they wanted new Greek Bibles for the Jewish people because the Septuagint, although it's an excellent translation, it just, uh, it was just, uh, because it was the favorite of the Christians, they, they wanted a different version. And so they had, um, there was Aquila and Symmachus and Theodosian, and they made these new versions, which were, I don't think, were as accurate as the Septuagint. Why are we talking about this? Well, because to understand the structure of the Old Testament, what's going on, you have to know something about language and, and even history. Because most Jews in Jesus's time and even before spoke Greek, not Hebrew. Right? They were taken into exile by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. Now, those who are still living in the Persian Empire, they learn Aramaic. That's the, you know, the imperial language of diplomacy. And so many Jews spoke Aramaic. But then Alexander the Great comes by uh, two centuries later with a vigorous program to make the world Greek-speaking. So by the time of Jesus, Jews are speaking Greek. Probably a lot of them, even in Israel, were speaking Greek. But outside, I think they were all speaking Greek. And there are loads, you know, millions of Jews in Egypt, in uh, Asia Minor, you know, Anatolia, all over the Mediterranean world. And this is really cool. The Septuagint is the same language. It's written in the same language as the New Testament. Common Greek, not, not classical Greek, not difficult literary Greek of, of Plato and Aristotle, which is great, but something that it's easier, it's more relaxed, it's newer, and it's called Common Greek, Koine Greek. So for most Jews, just think of the apostles on missionary journeys, most of the audience, they're familiar with the Septuagint. And the documents of the New Testament will also be in that same language of Koine Greek. The New Testament quotes or refers to the Old Testament more than 300 times. All the exact numbers I have somewhere in my head or in my, I give you kind of approximations in the notes. I think it's about 340 quotations. More than 300 of those are from the Septuagint. The remainder are from the version of the Hebrew Bible that you're familiar with, because that's the one that most English Bibles are translated from, although there are other versions as well. But, I mean, this is 90% of the quotations are from the Greek version. And that's why if you turn back to Deuteronomy or Psalms or wherever the New Testament writer is quoting from, it fits. Oh, sometimes you have to stretch a bit. Sometimes the wording's not right. It's because they're not quoting from the same version. They're quoting from the Greek Old Testament. And how does the Greek order end? Well, very interesting. Uh, the, the, the order that, that we go with is not the tripartite order of the, of the, the Masoretic text. We have a different order. We end with prophecy, and that's, that's more of the Greek order. Now, the 12, that is uh, all the way up to Malachi, is the way our Bibles end. It ends with the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. So now you're not thinking about going back to Jerusalem because you're actually already there, but 
there's a Messiah who's going to come, and he's going to purify the corrupt temple establishment. Oh, before he comes, an Elijah figure will show up. Of course, that's John the Baptist. And then the Lord God himself, the one you're seeking, he will come. Well, even in this more Greek order, the Old Testament leaves you hanging because, well, where is he? The Messiah is not there. We still need a New Testament. Okay, maybe that's a lot of new material for you. Maybe it's very familiar already, but you should know that. I think all Christians will benefit from that. How many of these books are genuine? You know, the the Orthodox canon has 49 documents normally. The Catholic canon, because they have the Old Testament Apocrypha, they've got 46. Most Protestant Old Testaments have 39. Um, The Protestants removed the extra books of the Apocrypha. Uh, Well, not immediately. You've all heard of the King James Bible. When that was translated, that included all the Apocrypha. But eventually it was removed. And so today most Protestants use only the books that uh, the Jewish people decided they wanted to keep. But there were others. This is the the subject for other podcasts in the future, okay? So these apocryphal books are extremely useful. They help us understand how theology was developing in the Greek period, you know, the Hasmonean period, the Roman period. And they're useful because they fill in holes in the history of God's people between 400 and maybe 7 BC, or whenever John the Baptist was born. They also help us, as I mentioned, to understand quotations and allusions in the New Testament. Now, there were spurious documents written in the so-called intertestamental period and even into the first century AD. So I'm not saying what I think about inspiration, but these things are quite useful. All right, that was uh, section four on how the Old Testament is arranged. And if you're reading, uh, if you, like me, you have a Hebrew Bible, you'll see it's in a very different order than the Septuagint. Uh, and our versions, most English versions, tend to follow the, uh, they, they follow the, uh, roughly, the kind of the format, the layout of the Greek Bible. All right, number five. Let me share a perspective I came across pretty recently. I thought it was pretty cool. You know, I, I, this is a very fundamental class here. It, it's not too deep. It's very uh, broad brush, but I, I think that can be good. And this, is, uh, this will be credited to Donald Miller, 1978. Miller was looking at the five books of the Torah and noticing a kind of progression. Now, whether that progression exists or not, you must decide. But I like the way he does this. Genesis is the prenatal word of God. Everything is embryonic. Exodus is the time where God's people are born, birth and infancy. Leviticus is childhood. Numbers is adolescence. And Deuteronomy is adulthood. Let me flesh this out a little bit. Genesis as the prenatal word of God. Everything is embryonic. We find the outlines of creation and covenant and great energies are gathering. An enormous hope is swelling in the womb of Genesis. Promises have been made, but not fulfilled yet, at least not most of them. Exodus, birth and infancy. The pregnancy comes to term. Now, the pregnancy was centuries long, not 40 weeks, but you know, more like 400 years. It comes to term in the birth of the people of God. Painful and arduous travail in Egypt, the breaking of Red Sea waters, and then the miraculous newborn is visible on the far shore. 
singing and dancing and praise uh, result. And the infant people take their first uh, tentative steps and they receive their first instruction at Sinai. Don't do this. Do that. Don't forget this. Do that. Then they move on to Leviticus, childhood, learning their ABCs under the mercy and judgment of God. And the instruction is audiovisual. Leviticus does not deal with abstractions and theory. I mean, you read about the scapegoat going off in the wilderness. There's lots of fire, uh, things being slaughtered, uh, body and part, parts and organs, a red heifer, rituals that are enacted or seen. Or so it's it's a way of God teaching His people about mercy and judgment, about sin and grace, from childhood to adolescence in numbers. And of course, that includes rebellion. It's the awkward years. The awkwardness of the wilderness years, nostalgic for the secure and womb-like existence they had in Egypt. They grow restless. They grow impatient with Moses and the fuddy-duddies, you know, the older generation. And then we come to Deuteronomy. It's a better situation. Adulthood. They've matured. They're ready to receive the promised land inheritance. Now God's people are trained educated, tested. Moses presents the people before God and God presents them before Moses and blesses them. And it's all about love. Love is obedience, is love. And Deuteronomy integrates everything that develops in us from infancy through childhood and adolescence and enables us to have intimate and faithful personal relationships. It's all brought together in Deuteronomy and love is the operative word. So what do you think of that? Uh, there's sometimes more to the order than we may realize. Now, here's another way to look at the order. Six, the concentric circles. So I want you to imagine a target. We'll start with a bullseye, and then there are several circles outside. If you've ever done archery or if you've ever done riflery, just think of one of those targets. In the center is what is most holy. It's the Torah. It's the law God gave to Moses on Sinai. The next circle, the prophets. The prophets have a simple message, really. Obey the Torah, and you'll receive Torah blessings. Disobey, and bad things are going to happen. Bad things. The worst of which is exile. God will take the land back. You'll lose everything. You'll be among the nations. So that's the that prophets. It's a bigger circle, but it's because Torah is inside it. So the prophets are directing people to the center, to the very center, uh, the importance of obedience. Then the next circle is the writings. So see what we're doing is we're going through Tanakh. We're going from Torah to Nevi'im to Ketuvim. So the writings are reflections on life in conformity with Torah or life not in conformity with Torah. I mean, you, you read Job, read Ecclesiastes, Psalms, you, you get the idea. And there's even one more circle because the Jewish people continued to produce literature. Like any literate civilization, they produced prodigious amounts of literature. That doesn't mean those works are inspired, but it would include much of the Apocrypha and other documents lost or discovered or yet to be discovered. So concentric circles. So as you go towards the center of this target, you're getting closer to the intent and heart of God and things are holy. Um, This is not to say that the prophets are unimportant because they're the second circle. They're vitally important, but the prophets don't create any new doctrine. They just point us back to the law. So in a way, 
I ask the question, are some parts of the Old Testament more important than others? In a way, I think a Jewish response might be, well, the Torah is the holiest. And the prophets direct us there, and the writings also direct us there, but they're more reflective. So concentric circles, seven. I want to share another perspective I found from someone else. This is Eugene Peterson, 1987, uh, the one who wrote the paraphrase, The Message. And his perspective is on how the two testaments parallel each other, the two books. And I think I've thought about this for years, but I love the way he puts it. So the Old Testament, we have the Torah, the prophets, the writings. The New Testament, we have the gospel, the epistles, and we have James and Revelation. Okay, let me explain. Torah is the basic story of the Old Testament, right? The prophets, uh, again, this is the Jewish way, Joshua to Malachi. The prophets take this story and they introduce it into new situations through the centuries. They're not insisting on just reciting the past or being proud of tradition, but they're emphasizing the importance of faith and obedience. And then the writings, the third section, a reflective response, assimilating and then responding to it in wisdom and in worship. Think of Proverbs and Job and Psalms. Okay? So he looks at the New Testament and he sees some parallels. You probably thought of this yourself. I don't, I don't think I'm the only one, uh, but I love the way he's put this together. The gospel is the new Torah. The gospel is the new Torah. It's, it's the law for Christians. I mean, Matthew does this in a not very subtle way. I mean, Jesus is presented as the second Moses. The teachings are in five blocks in Matthew, you know, paralleling the, the five uh, scrolls of the Pentateuch. Then you've got the epistles. Now, that would correspond to the prophets of the Old Testament. The epistles. Here the story is told through uh, journeys and conflicts in multiple geographic settings around the Mediterranean basin. Now, so this is uh, helping people to be aware of the gospel, like the new Torah, pointing them there. Now, before we get to the third section that corresponds to the writings, we come to Acts. Acts is... uh, a double role, plays a double role. It turns the Gospels into a Pentateuch, because now we've got five books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, but it also introduces the apostolic, or shall we say prophetic, lives of Peter and Paul. So Acts has kind of a dual purpose. And remember, it's written by Luke anyway. Uh, Luke Acts is one quarter of the New Testament. So it it plays that kind of a role. So what, what would correspond to the writings? Well, Peterson suggests James and Revelation. James is wisdom literature. Uh, Revelation, of course, is apocalyptic. This is the response of a people whose, whose lives are shaped by the story that they've heard and told in faith. So, nice parallel. Think about it. It's all in the notes with, with this lesson. Eight, eight, assorted facts. Okay, it's going to get really easy now. Uh, the long and the short of it, the longest book in terms of chapters in the Old Testament, Psalms, right? And that's the longest in the whole Bible. The longest chapter of the Old Testament. Do you know it? If you think Psalm 119, you're right. The shortest chapter, Psalm 117, and you're right. What's the longest book in the Old Testament just by words or letters? You know, in terms of ink, Jeremiah. 
That's the longest. The Old Testament is written in two languages. Do you know what those languages are? It's not just Hebrew. That's 99%, but 1% of the Old Testament is written in Aramaic. Uh, A good chunk of Daniel and a good chunk of Ezra are written in Aramaic. And there are a few other uh, verses or partial verses here or there, including even in Genesis. The Old Testament is about three quarters of the Christian Bible. Wow. The Old Testament was the Christian Bible until the New Testament came together in the second and third centuries. So when the New Testament refers to scripture, you know, everything written in the past, like Romans 15, 4, it's talking about the Old Testament. When it says all scripture is inspired and useful, it's talking about the Old Testament, virtually always referring to the books of the Old Testament, because there isn't really much New Testament to refer to, not in terms of covenant, but in terms of scripture. So if we claim to know the Bible well, and... A lot of people in the churches where I go, I think they think they know the Bible well. Okay, if we claim to know the Bible well, but we have a substandard knowledge of Old Testament history, geography, and theology, that claim is careless, if not downright dishonest. If all we have a perspective on is the Gospels and then some of Psalms and Proverbs and Yeah, we've read the New Testament. We've never read the whole Old Testament. We don't really understand the history, and we're not planning to learn it. I think it's somewhat disingenuous to let people think that you really know the Bible when you have a substandard understanding of of the Old Testament. So take it or leave it. Dating, nine. The Old Testament is roughly chronological. Obviously, the creation is first. Uh, That has to be first. And waiting for the Messiah, that makes sense at the end. In the prophets, and most visible in the long prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, a good deal of the material is arranged, it's arranged thematically, not chronologically. So there can be jumping around. And of course, they didn't have years, uh, dates back then. Uh, Everything was dated by the reign of the king. This is the fifth year of the reign of, you know, King Amaziah. So you, you have to know the order of the kings to figure it out. Uh, I, I like numbers. I'm much better with numbers than with people. Uh, but So the prophets arrange things uh, thematically. So if it, if it seems like it's jumping around like crazy, it's because it is. It's all right. So roughly chronological. Uh, some parts are only very loosely chronological. And most scripture was authored from about 1,000 to 400 BC, maybe even some of it in the 300s. Okay, I hope that's useful. Number 10. Uh, For further study and reading, I've got links to um, Bible study tips, to a book, an audio set, and some podcasts that can help you to get the big picture. It's time to wrap it up. It's time to review. The Old Testament is not a book, but a library. We're looking at the structure of the Old Testament because it's not all the same. Getting a grip on How it comes together, how it came together, how it's arranged, gives us perspective and confidence, I believe, in understanding God's message. Because for all of us Christians, the Old Testament is still the Word of God. The Old Testament's not a book, but a library. The authorship is usually anonymous, although there are, you you can clearly see the hand of some important persons. The Old Testament came together 
in a process. It came together gradually. And whether we're talking about the Hebrew Old Testament or the Greek Old Testament, the complete ancient Old Testaments that survive, uh, the, the end leaves us hanging. The story is not over. Sections in order. The Hebrew version has three parts, the Greek version four parts, right? And we skirted the interesting issue of the apocryphal books, what's called deuterocanonical. The books that are part of our canon that we all love and believe are inspired, we would call proto-canonical. But the deutero, deuteros is uh, the Greek word for second, deuterocanonical writings. What about those? Again, that's for another class. We looked at some perspectives on the Pentateuch and the Bible by Miller and Peterson. And then uh, I drew a picture of the concentric circles of the target with Torah at the very center. You want to strike the bullseye. If you're off, the prophets will rebuke you. They'll say, hey, hey, look, pay attention. Get back in the center. Center yourself. Obey the Torah. And of course, things don't always go as we hoped. We we, we plan and we fail, or others fail us. Uh, life is a lot harder than we ever realized. And so we have reflections on life in conformity or not with the Torah. Then uh, I'll give you some assorted facts. But the one I, I would consider most important is that most of your Bible is the Old Testament. And that is a great reason for becoming truly a student of the Bible. I hope this podcast, this lesson has been useful and that you'll remember these things as you continue every year, every day, to spend time in the life-changing Word of God.